you don't have the support of others around you, I think you have nothing. That's the voice of James Graham, CEO of Recce Pharmaceuticals, headquartered in Sydney. Listen in to hear thoughts from James about leadership in biopharma and how Recce is working to develop a new class of synthetic anti-infectives designed to address the threat of antibiotic-resistant superbugs. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with James Graham, CEO of Recce Pharmaceuticals, headquartered in Sydney. Welcome to BioBoss, James. Hello, John. Good to be with you. James, what led you to your role as CEO of Recce Pharmaceuticals? Yes, look, it was quite an untraditional path, if I say so, John. I like business, and that's a kind of unusual for a young guy. And frankly, I go to the, you know, down to a, for a beer with my friends, and they talk sport, and I don't know what they're talking about. But when it comes around to business, any business, I find it fascinating. So my actual success, by way of uh, which allowed me the capital to be the foundational investor of Recce, came from a completely different company, a folding boat company of all things. But the fundamentals of business remained the same. The, the product changed, aka uh, I invested in a number of things. One of them was Recce, supporting a brilliant inventor. Get, having a go and seeing what may be possible in this area of great unmet medical need. So, as some com- sometimes can happen, you start to learn about something and you find yourself really, really interested. And, uh, you know, I made that a foundational investment. Uh, I've invested in almost every capital round to date. But really, my role wasn't a job. My role was supporting uh, this brilliant inventor. It did turn into a job uh, when I realized I couldn't find him any more money and I didn't want to put too much more in uh, directly myself. So, I joined as an executive director, listed it on the Australian Stock Exchange, aka I got a job. And then I um, uh, ended up becoming CEO Managing Director for the last uh, perhaps two years. And as the second largest shareholder in the company, I get to align with our shareholders. I get to work with brilliant people, our philosophy of good people and great science. Nobody, no matter how good they are, can really do anything meaningful unless they have Others who believe what they're doing makes sense, wants to be part of it, and will go the extra mile to see that delivered. And so often, I think, why do people, one, recently listen to what I have to say, two, go above and beyond? You know, our colleagues work seven days a week, all hours of the night, so on and so forth, because they, and that'll be down a path that I had an initial idea on, and they've ran off and delivered it. And it's incredible because I, one, I, I, can't do the things that they can do, aka it would never be delivered even if I tried. And two, they are so damn good at the particulars of that, it not only gets delivered, it gets delivered better than it ever would have been by way of uh, me just imagining it at the time. And, you know, if you don't have the support of others around you, frankly, I think you have nothing. No matter how good your technology is, you can't do it on your own. You respect opinions of others as you've described it, but how do you know... How do you know when it's time for you to make the difficult decision and not punt it? Everybody has their style. I don't actually know if there's a right or wrong per se, but is where the end outcome is from the start looked like their idea all along and they thought of it, they um, indoctrinated themselves in it by all I do is ask them the questions to get them to the point 
where, oh, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, go, okay, I didn't say you should do this because they answered the questions in a way that they ended up. And I find in that context, people can really take significant ownership of whatever that may be. And that always, I believe, gets the best outcome for all involved. Everybody is motivated by something. Now, the obvious is, you know, whatever it may be, uh, it can be a title, job title, which frankly to me means stuff all. To some people, they don't care what they get paid. They don't care what office they're in. They their job title, everything, or how their family views them or how their father would view them or the money they may make or the money they their friends think they make or whatever it may be. And one really hit me where actually I've had two instances. Um, one was with some of our more scientific people. I thought, you know, surely you turn up to make a you know nice bit of money and you have a bit of fun doing this technology stuff and you go home and your family prospers. I gave them a significant uh, financial benefit, aka an option pool. And they were so perplexed they didn't know what options were they didn't see the value in it they were um rattled by it they were just i don't want these options i don't want to talk about any money and and i'm thinking my god i'm actually trying to give you the golden handshake to see you deserve you get all the upside and benefit in this handshake right now for everything you've achieved and they don't want that it's like I'd say money, they run out the door. Whereas other people, if I don't say money, they don't come in the door. <laughs> it was a really or Another one was actually, uh, you know, I wanted to give somebody a promotion and they loved what they did so much, despite it being one of the lower ranking titles, that they burst into tears and said, I just love what I do. I don't want to leave this desk. I'm here to talk with the colleagues and feel relevant. And I thought, that's weird, but good on you, man. That's Yeah, you do that. I think it's rather mysterious to a lot of people, investors included, they probably don't see a big part of what you have to do each day. So if you think about when someone says, hey, what, what do you do for a living, James? How, uh, you can answer that in so many ways. But another way to say it would be, how do you spend your day? What I love most about uh, what I do, and I say what I do because I think the t term, what do I do for a living, is different to what what do you do for a job? Because what I do for a living is actually kind of all encompassing. At any point in any day, um, it can be anything. And what I like most about that is the the speculative unknown. Every day is different, and the biggest challenge I find actually is twofold. One, not waking up in the night and too many times and reading my emails because I just get so excited. And two, when I do fall asleep. I have such vivid actual dreams in a work setting that I can wake up the next day and be convinced this has happened and move ahead as if it, it never happened. It was in my dream. So, so what I mean by that is blending the world between what I do for a living and actually living in whatever form that may be. People ask, you know, what 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 do you do for a living or what do you do for a job? And I don't really know how to, uh, it depends. So if I say, you know, I'm president of the leading biotech, that doesn't go. So I generally say, oh yeah, you know, I run a little biotech on the stock exchange. If they're interested enough, they'll ask another question. But no matter how big, best performing, blah, blah, blah it is, it's never actually a perfect sentence, generally speaking, to say what you really do for a living. <laughs> when, when people ask you about what you do for a living, do you quickly move to the, the nature of what the company does, the anti-infectives, or can people understand that and grasp that? I guess it's one of the questions. And it really depends, obviously, on who the 
a person I'm before. So if they're um, uh, of a say, technical scientific sort of background, I don't generally say I run a biotech company on the stock exchange. I say we have an infectious disease company with the lead antibiotic candidate in the world at this time, blah, blah, blah. Now, if I'm talking to a venture capitalist, I say, you know, I run this biotech company. We're the sixth best performing biotech over the last five years. I even put another $310,000 in the thing the other, other day and I'm actually up. Who, who would have thought? You know, it kind of depends on the person trying to connect as quickly as possible. Like if you say the scientific one to the business guy, they walk out the door. You say the business one to the scientific person, they might cry. Like, you know, kind of all sorts of things happen. But each and every way I'd say it, I genuinely feel the passion of everything that surrounds what we do. Can you recall when you were eight or nine or 10 or something like that? What, and you're trying to picture probably what your parents thought you should do or what you thought you should do when you got to be a grown-up. Do you remember any of that? Does that have anything to do with what you're doing? You know, when you're a young person, maybe, maybe it's just me. So, you, you know, you look at dad and, and my dad was incredibly successful in all sorts of ways. But no matter what he ever did, he's still dorky dad. Oh, dad, you're such a loser. Oh, why in the paper again? Go away. Like, you know, all these things. But despite those young, youthful days of thinking, you know, oh, I'm embarrassed by my dad for no reason. It's just a father-son thing. I always wanted to be like that. But I could never say that to dad. And it was kind of one of those things of how and knowing you somehow would become what he was. And I'd like to aspire to uh, always be like that. But the other realization I thought, I want to be – as just a little bit better than dad because then, you know, I've achieved what he sought and it just kind of made sense to me. One of the greatest challenges from my area is I actually am not – I'm good at a lot of things, but I'm great at none. So, I'm not an accountant. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not actually qualified in anything but business. And that means – Nothing. So, so in the case of, um, by example, comparing to my father, who I always aspired to be like, uh, he never had a degree. We well, got one just just before, of course, his passing at fifty two. But uh, he did so many amazing, amazing things. And why did he manage to achieve those across so many industries and so many successes? Um, because he tried, and he tried really, really hard. He was never the qualified because he didn't have a qualification. He was never whatever it may be. But that, yeah, I can do it. I'm going to do that and deliver it. I just thought was incredible. By example, if you eat an Australian barramundi, which is, of course, a national fish in America right now, you're eating my fish, mate. That's dad created that company and the family's going to make some money out of it. So, make sure you eat barramundi. But how radical, yeah, no, but how radical it, you know, to go from Deep down Australia, Perth, Western Australia, most isolated city in the world where I grew up and go, I'm going to go over to New York. I'm going to acquire the biggest indoor fish farm. I'm going to get rid of this American crap they're eating and they'll like bar money. They've never heard of it, but they'll love it. That is radical. And he did it. And, <laughs> and I think, oh, my God. But actually, one of Dad's things uh, towards the latter part was he, he said, I wish I really knew what I wanted to do because I would have just done it. He said he just did like lots of things. And I thought... Well, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> it's kind of the goal somewhere out there, but you never really kind of hit it because it never, you know, hit, but it's fun. That keeps you constantly striving to find whatever that may be. 
What do you say when people ask who is recce or what is recce? We actually are a what I believe to be new category, a new category that you know if you want to invent the name and expect everybody to know what that is, it's too damn hard. So I call it an antibiotic, but it's not an antibiotic. So instead, when I talk antibiotics, when I talk about us, I talk about us out of passion because when none of the crappy pieces there. We have economic method of manufacture. We have thousands of species of active uh, mechanisms of action. We work and keep on working with repeated use. We cater to unmet medical needs, meaning those not serviced by existing antibiotics. And that allows commercial pricing uh, and it allows choice. And I think that among the other um, advantages that is recce, this new category is very exciting. We are the most uh, clinically advanced antibiotic or new class of antibiotic in the world at this time, the first in over 40 years. We are the only escape pathogen uh, compound, escape, 50% of um, deadly bacteria fall into the acronym of escape, capable compound in the world at this time. We are the only uh, FDA QIDP designated compound for sepsis, most expensive condition treated in human health in the world at this time. And hey, if you like stock markets, we're the sixth best performing stock uh, biotech stock over the last five years. So technology works, people are making money, and I'm having a good time doing it too. You kind of, I'm saying that bit of tongue in cheek, but who wouldn't resonate with that? That's not going to happen. You're going to hit somewhere with it. So it kind of, it works and it's nice. Do you, do you ever get the dreaded uh, question of, uh, well, if this is such a good idea, James, why didn't someone else think of this? I love those questions because that's an opportunity. And um, depending on the person and circumstance, a variety of uh, ways to answer it is, you know, if it's so good, why why didn't somebody think of this? And if, I, if it was technical, I'd say, well, who actually thought of an antibiotic? What actually happened is nature created it, somebody swabbed it, cultivated it out, and they call that an antibiotic as if they invented it. They didn't invent it. That's not an invention. We invent uh, nature because we synthetically begin with the end in mind, design what we want in our compound, uh, and that achieves far better than nature ever will, uh, has been or will ever be able to do. And in that context, I, I, I really see it's not, you know, why didn't somebody else do it? It's because nobody has ever done it. People have been swabbing stuff, cultivating it out. That ain't invention. That ain't smart. They like to think they're pretty smart, but they're frankly, I don't think they, they are. We are streets ahead, and I believe that's where the innovation and opportunity comes in. I can picture someone saying to you, what would make your innovative idea any less prone to becoming ineffective at some point because nature is so smart? So the last class of antibiotics was 40 years ago. Now, if I uh, saw a car at the front, you know, that, that was 40 years old and they say, look, you know, it starts one in every three days now. Well, you know, 40 years ago, this thing worked, but now it starts one in every three days, may or may not make it around the block. But I'd like you to pay the premium that it was priced at 40 years ago for something that's now technically an old battle axe that doesn't work. And I go, that's dumb. So what I mean by that is if you have a car out there that's new technology, does what it says on the bottle, aka will kill an infection. That often, often now the drugs no longer work. So, not going to pay a premium for that if it doesn't work, mate. And uh, it just puts an obvious business case of, I think if something does work and does deliver what it says on the bottle, aka a new technology, not a forty-year-old battle axe that clearly has had its day in place, people will pay for that. And particularly when we look to uh, where we fit in, only unmet medical needs. 
only those of large patient populations. And that we do in twofold. One, unmet, meaning uh, no existing compete. If it was met, somebody would be in there and be pricing accordingly and similar. But two, it also in that space, um, you have significant patient populations. You know, sepsis is one of ours. That's the number one most expensive condition in health, double the second most expensive. The, the problem with uh, res- resistant drugs is that nature keeps playing its part of the arms race. So I guess the question I'm getting at is how would your new approach to doing that play into that? Um, you know, as I, I commented earlier, I was the founding investor. I would never invest in a antibiotic, t- traditional antibiotic. And the reason that is, is nature is very, very smart. And nature, uh, when it, you know, ev- evolution, water rises, suddenly things turn into, uh, you know, animals turn into fish. Or in the case of uh, antibiotics and bacteria, the antibiotic uh, is much like a lock and a key. So you've got the antibiotic and you've got the bacteria. Today, the antibiotic wins. It won that war. Now, the bacteria is not the game of losing. So it's going to do something differently when they come back knocking next time, and it's going to mutate. And it's that hypercellular mutation or survival mechanism that has always taken place since, you know, millions, millions of years ago will always happen and continue to happen. So expecting an antibiotic, aka something you find in nature that'll work today to work tomorrow or the next day, good luck, it ain't going to happen. So how do you synthetically cheat nature or over knowing that they're going to do a number of things, put on a lipid outer layer so that things can't bind to them? No worries. Uh, a change in its gram structure or protein uh, uh, nature? No worries. Um, become a biofilm or similar? No worries. So in our context, we know it's going to do anything it possibly can to survive. And we instead designed our compound to have thousands of mechanisms of action. Uh, the best any existing a- antibiotic to date currently has is two, maybe three. Now, I can tell you now, two, maybe three, uh, you know, you might have a pistol, a machine gun and, you know, a taser. They're going to work that out. I got thousands. They're not going to work that out. And that, I think, uh, is the fundamental to mean we work and keep on working with repeated use, which not only means a compound of some value, a compound that will continue to have value over the time ahead. And, and I'd just add one more to there. The, my investment at the initially was one to identify which compound. That's kind of that's not a great place to invest, but thankfully we did strike. And then to lodge patents. And our patents we lodged was the ability to work and keep on working with repeated use. So nature will always continue to evolve but being a step ahead, and in our case, I believe, multiple steps ahead, having catered to any possible mutation that could ever be conceived ever, puts us in a place uh, of power rather than reliance on what nature's given. Thanks for speaking with me today, James. Great speaking with you, John. As a BioBoss listener, you know that my conversations with founders and CEOs are intended to provide insights about leadership in biopharma, And if you've followed along with these discussions over the past five years, you also know that successful leadership can take many forms. For James Graham, leadership springs directly from his love of business. As James said at the beginning of our dialogue, I like business. When it comes down to business, any business, I find it fascinating. 
James seems to enjoy an advantage in leading businesses because he appears to appreciate the variety of human experience and meeting people where they are. This curiosity about each person James meets can lead to open communication, to finding out what motivates someone, and more importantly, why. Armed with an understanding about a person's perspective, it may be possible for a leader to discover areas of mutual interest and move things forward for both parties. And from that position of shared interests, a leader can bring others along on the journey. As James says about leaders, no matter how good they are, they can't really do anything meaningful unless they have others who believe that what they're doing makes sense, that they want to be part of it, and will go the extra mile to accomplish the mission. James goes on to say, if you don't have the support of others around you, frankly, I think you have nothing. No matter how good your technology is, you can't do it on your own. This last point about building support from others seems like a natural extension of James's meet the people where they are approach to leadership and the power that can come from a leader inviting teammates to take ownership of ideas. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss.